I went a little <laughs> jazzy today. I went a little jazzy. I like it. Welcome to the Chug and Chat. We are your hosts, Mo. And Liz. Hello. Welcome to the second Hello. interview. Ooh, that was nice. Ooh, thank you. That was really sultry and nice. It's getting me somewhere. I like it. I really it's, like it. It's a uh, late night with Liz. <laughs> <laughs> it's midnight Mo hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Ooh, it's getting sexy <laughs> up in here real quick. <laughs> Throw back to season two. So I couldn't help but add a throwback to Mo and I being silly, um, especially because we're just completely giddy that we were able to do this interview. Rebecca Traster is somebody that we admire and has helped us think outside the box when it comes to feminism and women in politics um, and all that stuff that we've been talking about on the podcast so far. And, you know, literally the first day that we started this podcast, Morgan is the one that was like, let's just reach out to Rebecca Traster and just see if, you know, (laughs) she responds back. And I was the one that was like, no way. Like, there's no way. And here she is um, in season three. Um, and it's just amazing. So I'll shut up and let y'all listen. We've dedicated this episode to Rebecca Traster. Thank you. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce Rebecca Traster, author of all the single ladies that we talked about in season one of the pod and Big Girls Don't Cry about the 2008 primary election between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Rebecca has been a guiding force for Liz and I in wrapping our brains around all the amazing ways women can show up in the world. And today she showed up for us. So I just want to thank you so much for being here with us. And like I just said, this is a huge moment for us. And if we are um, talking really fast and like freaking out a little bit in the beginning of this interview, it's because we are massively starstruck um, and love your work so much. So there's there's no way that any introduction that I could write would do justice to your work. And for our new listeners, especially, will you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, My name is Rebecca Traster, and I'm a journalist. I cover women in politics, media, and entertainment from a feminist perspective. Um, I write for New York Magazine. Um, I write a fairly regular column there, and then longer reported features. Um, I've been writing about feminism as a journalist for probably about 15 years, and I've published two books. The first about Um, women, race, and class uh, in the 2008 election um, called Big Girls Don't Cry. And then the second that I published in 2016 was called All the Single Ladies. Um, And that's me. And I'm working on a book right now about women, anger, and politics in America. Awesome. And we're going to ask you about that a little bit later too. So uh, now I want to turn the floor over to Liz, my amazing podcast mate, who wants to ask some questions. Go for it, girl. Thank you so much. Um, So we're sure that you haven't been asked about the election and eight months of Trump's presidency at all. (laughs) We're endlessly talking about it, thinking about it. And, you know, we really would love to hear your thoughts on this. And interestingly enough, I just listened the other day to your roundtable discussion on Women of the Hour, Lena Dunham's podcast. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, from before the election. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. And of course, it was so interesting listening to it after the election because you know, your reactions to Trump and his attacks on women, people of color, Muslims, et cetera, et cetera, are so reminiscent of how, you know, it feels like we're all feeling right now. But of course, I noticed 
that everyone talking seemed to be speaking under the assumption that Hillary would win the election. And I, I have to ask, did you have any doubts that she would win? Yeah, so my, my um, I, I felt, I never felt confident that Hillary would win the election uh, until the very, very end. I, you know, during the spring and summer, um, I mean, I wasn't sure she was gonna win the primary. Um, I thought it was quite possible that Bernie would win the primary. Um, and then when she did win, uh, as I covered both conventions, I was just, I was mostly terrified throughout. I, I never thought, I never thought either Bernie or Hillary um, was clearly electable. <laughs> I thought it was going to be an extremely hard year for any Democrat. And I thought that both of them had um, really obvious vulnerabilities working against them. So I was just scared the whole time. And through the summer, as the polls looked so good for Hillary, certainly before the Comey stuff, um, you know, and people were very overconfident and I felt they were really overconfident. I felt people were saying they knew what was going to happen with a kind of authority that I just didn't understand how they could have. And I, I was, I felt very girded the whole time for her loss. Now I can tell you the exact moment that I began to believe that she could win. Um, because it was like such a powerful sensation for me. It really told me how in my bones, I hadn't believed that she would win. It was the third debate. So having, I'm 42 years old, I've, you know, even before I was writing about politics, I cared very deeply about politics. I watch presidential debates. I pay attention since I was in um, grade school, I've paid attention. So I have a lot of elections under my belt and I'm very used as, and I've, you know, I've cared about left-leaning politics for as long as I remember. Um, and so my whole life I've watched presidential debates and I've watched the candidate who I believe in clearly do better in the debate and then watched commentators come on afterwards and say that that person got creamed, you know, and think, what were they watching? How were they watching the same debate? So I kept waiting for that. I kept waiting basically for, um, for the evaluation to be that Trump won a debate against Hillary. And I thought that was going to turn a tide for him and that, you know, I just, I'd never, I'd never had an experience before where my candidate so clearly dominated that everyone agreed that my candidate dominated. And so through the three general election debates, I watched them just absolutely white knuckle through all of them. Um, I found one of them, I found the second one very traumatic, the one where he was, the, where he brought in the women who'd accused Bill Clinton um, in the past and where he loomed over her. I just was so furious about so much and I was, um, but I was also just scared through those debates. And on the night of the third and final debate, I was watching it, taking an Amtrak home. I was w watching it streaming. And I, again, I'd white knuckled my way through it. And I expected this is going to be the one where they say he won. And she, he didn't. It was so clear that she won. And then when, I, but I still expected commentators to say differently because that's just what I've lived with my whole life. And I'm on the train and I'm watching the CNN polls and the commentators come on and say, you know, she, she killed it. That was her best debate performance so far. And I thought, oh my God, everybody just agreed that, that Hillary Clinton just won all three of these debates. I've never had that experience in my life. And it occurred to me on that train, wait a minute, she might become president. And I don't know, I think that was October. Um, and at the, I felt something, it was, it, it, the way that like it changed my brain chemistry, the thought, oh my God, she might get elected was so intense that I realized at that moment, I'd never believed it until that second. And so I think, and at that, but at that point it kind of took hold. I thought, wait a minute, maybe I've been wrong to be over scared about this. Maybe I've been 
too paranoid. Maybe she's going to win. Maybe Hillary Clinton's going to be president. And at that moment, I, you know, it kind of, that possibility really fixed in me. And I spent a couple weeks um, lulled after, after months of saying, no, I, I don't know that this is going to happen. I don't think this is a sure thing. Guys, I'm really scared. I really did think at the end that she might be elected. Um, I followed her campaign the last weekend before the election. I talked to people, they were very confident. Um, and I, so I got myself into a position where I really did feel like Charlie Brown in the football on election night. I mean, very early, as soon as I saw the numbers go funny, I knew she'd lost. It wasn't like I maintained hope beyond about 8.45. But, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I did think in the last couple of weeks, probably when I did that podcast, was probably, you probably heard the moment when I was the most confident. Absolutely. I, I did hear it. You know, I'll just say as a funny side note, I also watched the third uh, debate um, from a plane, actually, but also streaming by myself in a plane seat. And it was a, a very um, validating experience for me as well. So that's just kind of funny and interesting. But of course, you know, we are big fans. We're both big fans of Big Girls Don't Cry, where you do speak a lot to, you know, Hillary's inability to reach women. Did that moment for you in October, did, did that piece shift for you? Just the, you know, because of the possibility that she could win? Or, you know, do you still feel she kind of has this inability to reach women at large? Well, I don't know if it's an inability to reach women. I mean, I don't, I mean, she's, Hillary has communicative obstacles and some of them are hers and hers alone. And some of them are sort of structural challenges about how we hear women's voices and the kind of range of uh, rhetorical possibility that's in front of her. You know, I've written a lot recently about the sort of difficulty in communicating fury or passion. Um, you know, that, that she and lots of women speakers have because we don't react well to angry women in this country in the same way that we can understand angry men as somehow righteous or bearing some crucial message. Um, in terms of women, you know, it is like there are structural problems. First of all, white women in the United States vote Republican, and, and they almost always do, and the last exception was when they voted for Bill Clinton um, in 1992, and there were real... Um, racial, uh, you know, Bill Clinton's campaign played on racial animus that comforted white women to a degree. Um, you know, he left his campaign trail and went home and executed um, a, a man named Ricky Ray Rector in Arkansas. And he had what people refer to as the sister soldier moment. He traded on a lot of very ugly racial politics to reassure um, white Americans. Um, and I was really relieved during the 2016 campaign um, to see Hillary Clinton doing the opposite of that. In fact, you know, the thing that I think it probably, I mean, everybody sort of considers an error and probably was a strategic error, her use of the word deplorables, um, was the kind of opposite. Uh, it was refusing to double down on a, on a politics and a call to, to open racism and xenophobia that was being made by the opposition. Um, and she was she was taking a bet and not doing, by many measures, something her husband had done. Um, and I was, uh, I, I was hopeful that that would work. I was hopeful that um, Trump and Trump was such a repellent figure to enough women that 
Clinton would move more white women voters. And she moved more than, than you know, 2012. I mean, she, she did three percentage points better with white women than, than um, Obama had in 2012. But that's not, that's not saying a lot. <laughs> um, the fact is that it's very hard. Um, you know, you wouldn't have white male power in this country if you hadn't um, if, if they hadn't convinced a number of people to support it, including a lot of white women. And uh, it's pretty hard to, to win over those white women. So do I think she has trouble speaking to women? Sure. Um, you know, some of it, again, her own and some of it um, structural problems. But on the other hand, you look at this book tour that she's on. One of the stories that I've thought about a lot since the election is how undercovered the many women and men, but women, who loved her were. I mean, there were, she, you know, she also, for all of the trouble she had connecting to people, um, she also has these incredibly devoted um, people who voted for her and worked for her and worked their hearts out for her and believed in her. And even the ones, and lots of people who thought she was all those things you always have to say about Hillary Clinton, that she was flawed and she had issues and all this stuff and still really believed in her and she really did speak to them. So I don't think it's anything quite as blanket, quite as blanket a statement as she spoke to women or didn't speak to women. I think that like the complexities of both her communicative possibilities, the way the electorate is arrayed, the sort of the gendered and racial politics of this particular election, um, and the way that, that it was covered make it pretty impossible to sort of say she was good or bad at you know, reaching women. Absolutely. You know, and of course, in reading Hillary's book and also loving your piece in the cut about Hillary's book and women expressing their anger, you know, we've been thinking a lot about this as well and, you know, kind of what it means for the future of women in fe feminism and in politics. And, you know, I'm curious, do you think, you know, just her book or maybe the election itself has opened more opportunities, not only for women to express their anger, but for it to be taken more seriously? Um, well, you know, there are these moments, I've been looking a lot at the history of, of women and anger in this country and when, um, you know, when that anger sort of bubbles over and when it's, when it recedes again. Um, I certainly think that, I mean, we've seen a lot more anger and passion, um, coming from women and specifically from white women. Uh, in the wake of the election, but that in itself um, has its own sort of problems. Where were these women? Where were the white women who are so angry about Trump in advance of the election? Um, where yes. were the women? I mean, this was the famous sign at the Women's March, you know, held by, held, held by a Black Lives Matter activist that said, um, you know, where were all you nice white ladies? I, I'll see all you nice white ladies at the next Black Lives Matter march, right? Now, let me say that I am encouraged that, for example, in Boston, when there was the march um, against white supremacists this summer, you actually did see a lot of those nice white ladies. Like there is a degree to which I think that, the, that, that women who've been recently awakened to injustice and all kinds of reasons that they should be mad, not just on their own behalf, but also on the behalf of um, sisters and, and brothers, you know, who have uh, experienced different kinds of injustice and more intense and complicated uh, forms of inequality. I think there is a, at least a mild uh, sort of awakening um, 
beyond beyond you know the the kind of uh things you might you might expect but um yeah i do think people are really angry i think this is this is a cataclysm um you know we're living through like a terrifying and maddening period in which you know truth is lies and lies are truth and we're being um put in danger every day and you know and you know congress lines up to take away health care and um we have a president who you know signs things to give away national land and put coal waste back in waters and um you know the there's a lot to be angry at right now. And so, yes, I do think that we're seeing more of an expression of anger coming both from elected officials and from, you know, activists and voters. And that's great. Um, but we do need to think about the fact that it took this crisis to get women to give voice to their anger in this way. I mean, I've talked to so many um, activists and people who are really engaged in politics since the election in a way they never have been before and they talk about it as waking up as a sort of coming to life um, after having been almost closeted for all these years and you have to think about what kind of incentives are in place for for women to stay quiet about things that that they probably that they should be angry about um, it's like the white women who vote for policies and power structures that keep white men in power um, why does that happen? What do we offer women in exchange for not expressing their anger? What kind of disapproval do we um, show them when they do get angry? And those are questions that I think are really worth thinking about. Yes, and they're <laughs> questions that I feel like we've been mulling over in our brains a lot. We're both folks that have been involved for a long time, but we are white cisgendered women and, and want to figure out what is the best way to take our activism to the next level and truly make sure that we're moving forward in an intersectional, in an intersectional way. Like I, I think this is, it's more and more obvious to us that that's where we need to go and why we want to have this podcast so we can get that message out to as many women as possible. You know, it also makes me think of uh, this Sunday review piece I was reading this weekend by Clay, uh, Caitlin Greenidge. And, you know, I'll just read this short segment because it so encapsulates how I've been feeling about it. She says, what does the rallying cry of sisterhood and the concept of feminism mean when last year the majority of white female voters chose whiteness as a political identity over womanhood? What does feminism mean to each of us as black women when we had just lived through an election season of hearing candidates and commentators use that old unexamined phrase, women and black people, skipping over our existence as both. How do we understand women's history as triumphant when we are still smarting from the very public smackdown of a woman attempting to reach the highest seat of power? You know, and it really just begs the question for us, you know, what is the future of intersectional feminism and women in politics and how do we play a role? Well, one of the things to keep in mind, and this is not, this is not meant to be a cheerful thought, but that this is, um, this is the history of feminism too. There's not some grand old intersectional past, which is not to say that there hasn't been, I mean, first of all, the women's movement such as it is, was in many ways driven by um, and organized by, in many of its stages, by women of color, right? So it's not as though, um, you know, it's not, but, but at the same time, it's not as though these, these issues of division and attending only to certain women's needs or primarily to certain women's needs or dominated by certain women's, and I mean, white women's um, perspectives is new to the movement. If you look back at the um, 
you know, the divisions, especially after uh, the Civil War, uh, between the abolitionist and, and suffragist activists who'd, work, who'd come together actually initially over abolition and then worked together for suffrage and abolition simultaneously. And then after the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments had this terrible split where a number of the, the suffrage um, activists were so furious about the passage of citizenship and voting rights for black men but not women of, of any color um, that they split and became incredibly racist. Um, I mean, not became, they obviously harbored these sentiments all along, but began to openly express incredibly racist vitriolic messages about this idea that black men would have more of a right to civic participation than the, you know, the well-educated white women like themselves. That split um, you know, you're talking about the 1860s and 1870s when that, you know, when that's being discussed. You, if you read about Ida Wells, uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett and her relationship with Susan B. Anthony, which was simultaneously very close, very crucial, and very fraught, um, right. you know, you're looking back at these conversations that have been happening over hundreds of years. And so when you say, what is the future? The future is keep trying to make it better. And and trying to uh, you know a lot of it is probably is about um, white women stepping aside, not needing to be the leaders. It's about white women when they think of the term women, not just thinking of white women, you know, not just thinking of women. Oh, plus, you know, the the phrase from the Sunday Review was women and black people. But like also, I I feel like a lot of. Um, you know, the idea that there is a, a women, and I, I'm as guilty of this as anybody, by the way, um, talking about, about women as some mass identity. Um, and also, but thinking about, we, we need to keep thinking about the structural realities of this movement. And I said something about this earlier, the structural realities of who has power and what the fights we're engaged in currently um, are about. The way I've been thinking and talking about it um, over the past couple of years, and, and maybe the last year especially, um, you know, this country is a country that has always been, um, it's minority rule. Um, you know, white men have had a near exclusive group, grip on power, political power, economic power, um, you know, business, social, and sexual power uh, since the founding. In fact, the, the country was built on that power um, and that power over um, an enslaved population, a female population. Um, that is written into the founding of the country. It is what, you know, the economy is built on institutions, including slavery, including marriage, that structurally, economically disempower Americans of color, and that structurally disempower women. And of course, yes, <laughs> uh, the millions and millions and millions of women of color who, who experience um, both of those structural inequalities and then, you know, multiplied and, and, you know, beyond just doubling. So um, this is a country that is still in the grip of minority rule. Now, how does minority rule <clears throat> replicate itself? How does it continue? In part, it's by dividing a majority against itself because if a majority actually opposed the minority um, in, in a unified way, the minority would no longer have the exclusive power. And so one of the great fears that has been building has been a fear of, you know, uh, 
of the majority working together in, in more functional ways. And um, so a lot of the divisions that you see are in part because, um, you know, it is in the interest of those who have the most power to divide a majority. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Like pitting everybody against themselves so we can actually work together to strategize against them. Right. And I don't mean to be, I don't, I, but I want to be clear when I say that I don't mean to make it seem like, oh, you know, those who are pitted against each other are just victims of this. Like it's the, like, we're talking about racist white ladies. Like that's not who are making choices about, and, and, but, but we also have to look at the way that power is incentivized. Um, that, uh, that there are incentives in place uh, for white women to not work alongside, um, to, to, there are incentives in place for white women to support a white male power structure because white women benefit from that power structure. And, you know, whether as wives or as white people or as people who are more likely to have, I mean, and this, these are associated with race and, and racial privilege, more likely to, to have, you know, educational privilege, um, economic benefits, um, social power, this, the, the social power that comes with, with race. Um, and, you know, so we also, in addition to looking at sort of the, the personal interactions, which are crucial, we also have to look at it as larger structural forces that are at work. And we have to look at it that way as we try to, you, I don't, you know, I think it's way utopian to talk about dismantling those forces. They're, in, they're so entrenched, but we have to acknowledge them and try to work through them and beyond them. Um, and, um, you know, but we also have to engage white women. One of the things that I have been um, grappling with in, in, my, in my head is as I listen to white women who are newly um, engaged and, uh, and many of them in wonderful ways, but I listen to them talking about, um, you know, some of these issues as though they, they've just come to them and it's great. But I think, you know, there have been people who've been here for a really long time. Um, and it's wonderful to, you know, it's, it's necessary to have a population of, um, you know, activated white women, because obviously when you don't, you get results like November 2016. Um, but at the same time, there's an appropriative impulse that um, I, I am watching happen in real time as, you know, and, and that's something that I've, I've written about in my books in the past, you know, women of color were writing about the sort of the benefits of working outside the home, for example, the benefits to marriage and to families of women working outside the home. Sadie Alexandra, Alexander, a lawyer from Philadelphia, was writing about those things in the 1930s. And then Betty Friedan comes and writes about them in the early 60s, and she's the bestseller and, you know, considered the the mother of the of the modern women's movement. Um, it certainly was true when you're talking about um, women living outside of marriage um, for a lot of economic reasons, and in fact, in response to structural inequality, black women begin living unmarried, um, really in the post-war years, the 1950s and 1960s, at much higher rates than white women. Um, and at that point, they're viewed as, in fact, you know, Moynihan identifies them as the center of the sort of, um, of the pathology of black poverty, right? They're not only, they're, they're half victims and half um, the driving force behind social decay in the view of the world, these women living outside of traditional marriage structures. And then when white women 
begin to enact the same behavior, sort of starting in the 1980s and especially in the 1990s, um, and white women with a greater, greater access to economic privilege and resources, um, women begin to enact the same, white women be begin to enact the same behavior of living outside of marriage and it's romanticized and glorified and you get sex in the city and, and it becomes sort of identifiable as a kind of feminist liberation. So much about social change and activism, um, uh, so much of the story of that in this country is the story of white women um, mimicking or appropriating ideas and patterns originated with women of color. And the white women, in part because of their unequal access to media, to coverage, to a public pulpit, um, to being taken um, as legitimate in ways that women of color, are their voices are still um, heard as illegitimate in some way by a white, um, by a white media and a, and a and a white controlled uh, press, you get this pattern repeated over and over again. And we're living as you know, about ninety four percent of Black women voted against Donald Trump. Ninety four percent of Black women voted for Hillary Clinton. You know, and and a lot of the activism that we've seen since the election is white women who are horrified by the election of of Donald Trump. But Black women were there, and in fact, were taking the action to stop it. In addition to the fact that aside from just casting their votes, it's black women who are the backbone of the Democratic Party who do the work of organizing, of, of stuffing envelopes, of knocking on doors, and have since, you know, for decades, black women have been the backbone of that organization of left politics in this country, left organized electoral politics, that's black women. Um, and yet, and so we have to be aware as white women wake up as they must, and we wanna encourage that, um, that that black women have have been awake for quite a while and doing the work. Yes, I'm I'm right there with you, Rebecca. I mean, if it's hard to even swallow on social media, if I see another white woman with you know hashtag woke, <laughs> I mean it's a, it's hard to not uh, get frustrated. So I definitely understand where you're coming from, and that's why we're again we're so grateful you're here to help us put some of these. Um, facts and words out there to our listeners, because the more who understand this, the better. You know, how as a political journalist, have you been dealing with, you know, really the war on truth and making sure the right stuff is covered? Well, it's very hard to exert any, con well, no, I shouldn't say that. Uh, the war on truth, I mean, this is like, we're all deal we're all swimming in it. It's not any different for me as a journalist. I mean, I, I write, I, I you know, <laughs> I write what's true and I try to contradict lies um, every time I see them. But I don't think that's so different from people like, you know, um, you know, who are dry cleaners and uh, teachers and, uh, you know, firefighters and chemists, right? We're all like <laughs> working to, to sort of in our, within our own social circles and, and everywhere we are sort the truth from lies and, and try to fight on behalf of facts. Um, <laughs> yes. It's very difficult. But, um, but in terms of what to cover, that's actually, it's a very hard question to answer because there's almost no control like it's a fire hose of crap all day long. And you know, you can I, I, very often in the past eight months, I've had the experience of starting to write about something in the morning. And then by the night it's, you know, by the time I'm done writing a column, it's 
obsolete because the, whatever happened just passed in the night. Um, so there's That's been crazy been, making. <laughs> right. Well, it's been a period of very little journalistic control. I think for a lot of people, you're just kind of riding this news cycle and, you know, there, I've tried to deal with it in different ways. Sometimes, you know, right now I'm working on a piece that was like about something that happened last week. And I'm like, I will just write this piece. I will just write this piece. I will not care. <laughs> That it's a week late, I will, you know, other times you sort of scrap stuff and you try to get the next thing that just happened. And I missed, a, I mean, you know, the other thing is that the frequency is so, so tremendous. And I think this is one of the strategies is to sort of, you know, lull everybody, you, and lull everyone into paralysis. There's no way. I mean, I've written a truly you know, one ten thousandth of the pieces that I could have written um, in the past eight months about the kind of things that are happening all around us. And, you know, sometimes there's some choice involved, like, okay, I want to prioritize this and thus I'm going to ignore, you know, these 50 other things that happened today and the 500 other things that happened this week. And sometimes it's just chance, like, well, I'm clinging to this branch and this is the one I'm on right now and this is what I'm going to do. And it, I probably should have done the other thing, but I just didn't, you know? So I, I, there's not, I can't answer that question with any, and give you a, any confidence that I'm in any control here. I just wanted to give you a chance to just tell us a little bit about your book again and when we can expect to read it. Cause we're so excited to, to read anything you got coming out. We are well, so excited. It's about anger, women and anger and politics. So it's not about, there, there are wonderful books to be written and many that have been about women and anger as a sort of in a personal and emotional um, context, expressive context. And, and my book will have a tiny bit of that in it, but it's really about anger as a force in politics in a lot of directions. Um, so about how women's anger is heard and how we encourage or discourage women from expressing anger in a political context as candidates or as activists. Um, it's also about anger as um, both catalytic and destructive force um, for mass movements. Um, it's going to be about contemporary politics to some degree, certainly a little bit about the 2016 election and quite a bit about what's happened since that election. Um, but it's also going to look back at other moments in the United States when women's anger in particular, I think, was a driver for change, but also the way in which it can be an extremely corrosive force um, within movements. And so um, <clears throat> it's really just sort of picking it apart as a really, I think, crucial and under-examined and certainly under-respected current in American political history.